Hello and welcome everyone to episode 5 of the True Blue Crime podcast. If you haven't already, please check out episodes 1 through 4. Episode 1 covered the abduction and murder of Jacob Wetterling. Episodes 2 through 4 is a three-part series covering the superbike murders and subsequent murders committed by Todd Kolhep in South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about True Blue Crime Productions and its podcasts, please like and follow True Blue Crime Productions on the Facebook page. You can check out the website at www.truebluecrimeproductions.com. And as always, if you can, please donate to the Patreon site under True Blue Crime Productions. Or any Patreon donations will allow me to continue to make these episodes and make them free so that everybody that would like to hear them can. If you do donate, just like Jeff did before the last episode, I will give you a shout-out in the in a future recording, as well as give you a thank you message directly to you through the Patreon site itself. And so with all the business out of the way, I want to thank you for listening, tuning into this case. And before I get into the actual case itself, I will let you know that I have mapped out about the next 30 episodes of True Blue Crime. I'm pretty excited to, as to some of the cases that I will cover, but I decided to do a pattern to them to make sure that I stayed on track and didn't start covering just the same types of cases again and again. So basically every fifth episode is going to be what I call the flyover episode. And that is, it comes from a place that we Minnesotans like to call flyover country. And so that's going to be the upper Midwest. So it's going to be a case that originated in Minnesota, Wisconsin, one of the Dakotas or Iowa. And Some of the cases, like the one today, will be well-known and potentially even international, and other ones will be pretty localized to the point that maybe only a small audience knows about the case. For those not familiar, flyover country is a term that is used by people that live in the upper Midwest because people from the East Coast or the West Coast, since obviously those are a lot more populated, tend to fly from one coast to the other and in the process we just get flown over so this is going to be the first flyover case it is going to be the case of jamie kloss out of barron wisconsin this happened back in 20 late 2018 and early 2019 so it's pretty recent i know what kind of happened basically right before covid and while the local news continued to cover it and i did see quite a bit of international news covering some of the later stages of this case it did not completely lose people's interest or global interest but i did want to go back and and cover the case from beginning to end because what i do find a lot of the times is a case will garner a lot of attention when it first happens whether it be one of these uh, child abductions or mass shootings or, or whatever it may be and the news media, the 24-hour news cycle, is covering it for three, four, five days. And then either a suspect's identified, arrested, whatever it may be. And things kind of go quiet. And then you'll have something pop up six months, ten months, a year later when that person has their day in court or the trial begins or whatever it may be. But really, it's a segmented information dump on people. And so people kind of lose track or forget or 
you know, move on with their lives. And, and what I like to do is I like to find these cases that have gone through all the stages of the uh, crime, the investigation, and the trial so that I can kind of summarize it all up into one episode. So this is going to be a big episode. It might go past the hour mark. I'm not sure yet, but I, I feel like it is a case that interests a lot of people locally as well as around the world. And despite some of these, these serious unfortunate aspects of it, it does have a somewhat happy ending. So the date of this crime is going to be 1015 of 2018. And the location of this crime is going to be Barron, Wisconsin. Now Barron, Wisconsin is a town of a, roughly a thousand people and it's located in northwest Wisconsin. This area is known a lot for its uh, lakes and forests, uh, kind of the, very similar to northern Minnesota or the upper peninsula of Michigan. A lot of people from both Wisconsin and, and the surrounding states have cabins in this area. I, as a Boy Scout, went to a uh, camp uh, each summer that was up in this area, and I can tell you it is a very beautiful area and for the most part pretty rural. There's not a whole lot of large towns or attractions or anything like that. It's kind of a, a place people go to get away. So in this case, we're going to have three victims. I think the best way to dive into this case is to just get into the specifics of the case itself because at the time that this case happened, there was a lot of speculations and questions as to what exactly happened. And I think if I explain it all in chronological time order, some of that is information that we got after the crime was resolved. And while it's always nice to chronologically explain the crime, I think there's going to be better points of discussion as we go along if we treat it with the information we had at, at the time that the, the crime happened. So we're going to go into October 15th of 2018. Now this is at 12.53 a.m. So early morning hours, the night of October 14th into October 15th. So this residence in Barron, Wisconsin, the Kloss residence, is going to have an absolute nightmare brought upon them. At roughly 12.53 a.m., a car is going to slowly pull into the driveway off of the road in front of the house. It's going to be said later that the Kloss's dog named Molly, as dogs do, heard this, sensed this, any combination of above, and alerted the family that something wasn't right. So the male homeowner identified as James Kloss, age 56, walks to the front door armed with a flashlight. He is going to see someone standing on the other side of the door that begins knocking on the door loudly. Now, it's believed that James thought this might have been a police officer for some reason, and I'm assuming it's just because it's an odd time of night and the person is knocking on the door. So he demands to see a badge. And it's assumed that he looks... The, the front door itself is, is your regular front door of a home, but in the top middle, I guess, is the best way to describe it, uh, of a panel-style door. The center middle panel on the upper side has a 
decorative glass and an iron window to look through. So you can describe it as a large peephole, but it's something the size of, of like a piece of paper. And so it's believed that James looks through this area to see who's on the other side of the door and to look for a badge to see it's a police officer. And the person on the other side of the door uh, fires a single shot from a 12-gauge shotgun through this glass door, striking James in the head, killing him instantly. At this point, the suspect then fires more another round into the deadbolt area of the door. In law enforcement or military terms, this would be called breaching the door. This would be causing a large amount of damage to the locking mechanism of the door in order to gain entry. So one shot is fired, killing James. Another shot is fired that allows the suspect to gain entry to the home. Now, inside the home, other than who we've mentioned, which is Molly the dog and James, who's now deceased, is Denise Kloss, age 46, and her and James's daughter, Jamie Kloss, age 13. Denise takes Jamie and they barricade themselves in a bathroom on the upper floor of this home. The suspect starts coming through the home looking for Jamie and eventually is able to locate this locked door. Now at this time, Denise is calling 911 from her cell phone. It sounds as if uh, the suspect again breached the door to be able to gain access and it was at that point that the 911 dispatcher opened up. So the dispatcher didn't actually hear the shots, but she hears what is obviously some type of an argument or disturbance on the other side of the phone, and then the phone goes dead. The dispatcher tries to call back that number, and it goes to Denise Kloss's voicemail. The dispatcher was able to ping the cell phone, and this is where we can take a second to explain uh, 911 procedures. Now, I've been out of law enforcement for a couple years, and but I was, was in law enforcement at the time that this incident occurred. A 911 center, if you're calling from a landline, so a business or a home phone that still has a landline, most 911 centers are going to have enhanced, what's called enhanced 911, meaning that the second that phone call is made, the, uh, the uh, dispatcher is going to know exactly where that call came from. Uh, for the most part it doesn't always work that way with like phone trees and large businesses or anything like that but for the most part if you're calling from a landline or a single line phone somewhere in a business the dispatcher is going to know exactly what address that phone call came from now in the case of cell phones since they're mobile that technology isn't always there it's not the greatest now what they can do is a lot of play, a lot of dispatch centers when that phone call is made gps style information comes through showing where that phone call originated from but i will say that this does take at least a little bit more time so if you are ever in a situation where you need help and you need help immediately all you have is a cell phone if you can give the dispatcher, even if you can just shout out to the dispatcher your address or a rough description of where you are, where you need help, you're going to be able to get help there that much faster than if you're only able to call. Even if you, you have just a few seconds, if you spend that, those few seconds saying, I need help or send police fast, 
it's going to take more time to get somebody to you because there's just extra steps in place. So in this case, and I'm not faulting uh, Denise in this case, obviously, as we're going to know, there's terrible things going on. So she did what she could to get police there. Now, as it happens, there were several deputies in the dispatch center when this call came in. And the dispatcher very smartly played the audio out loud for these officers to hear. They immediately recognized something wasn't right and began driving uh, code three lights and siren to this residence. They're able to get uh, some GPS information and pretty quickly lock in where this, this disturbance is happening. Now, again, the dispatcher on callback is only getting voicemail. And that's because after the suspect made entry into the resident or into the, the bathroom, he finds Denise in a bear hug with her daughter, Jamie, trying to protect her. They've, they've pulled the shower curtain uh, around them to try to hide. The suspect finds them there. He forces Denise to duct tape Jamie's mouth shut. Uh, but Denise kind of fumbles with this. Obviously, she's under a lot of stress. And the suspect shoots Denise in the head. He then applies the duct tape to Jamie's mouth and then binds her, her wrists and legs with the duct tape and then uh, begins pulling her out of the house. He gets her out of the house, walks her down to his car, which is still parked at the end of the driveway, throws her in the trunk, and drives off. Now, it's later determined that officers responding to the scene did pass his car as it was leaving the house, and the estimated time was roughly about 20 seconds after he left. With Jamie in the trunk, the officers are seeing him on the roadway. Now, the officers have no idea that, A, what's going on, other than there's a disturbance, and B, that this car could be involved anyway. They don't see it leaving the residence. They just see it driving down the road towards them about 20 seconds away from the house. They do make a note of the vehicle. It's dark. They can't see a license plate, but they just believe it's an older red Ford Taurus style vehicle. And they arrive at the residence. So as officers arrive at the residence, the suspect is now beginning his roughly two hour drive with Jamie uh, to a, a, a residence in town of Gordon, Wisconsin, which again is about 70 miles away from uh, this kidnapping and double homicide occurs. So officers are now arriving, and we'll cover what they did as a part of their investigation, kind of highlight some of the, the, the things that they did. So basically, as they arrive, you know, they're expecting some type of disturbance in this house. They have no idea exactly what has happened. So they go up towards the front door, they knock and try to make contact with anybody inside the home because as far as they know it's it's a domestic disturbance an argument between two people it's it's a fight between siblings i mean it, it could be one of many many things they're not expecting what they do fine but they can't treat it because at this point they don't know anything about gunshots or you know anything along those lines because all they have is that 911 call in which it sounds like some people are you know yelling at each other there's some type of a uh, a disturbance going on and time that they drove there this disturbance could have calmed down and they can't just you know kick in a door or go in 
to a residence just because some people were arguing. So they're knocking, they're trying to make contact, but of course, unbeknownst to them, there's no one left alive inside the residence. But they can see from the front door, they can see James's body laying kind of in the, the front area of the home. So now they understand they've got a more serious situation. So they're gonna force entry into the home. They also notice that the door has been breached and they go in, see James laying there, they do a, a quick sweep of the home because, again, at this time, all they have at, at this time is one deceased individual. They don't know if that person was shot by somebody else who's still inside the home. They don't know if that person shot themselves, uh, but they don't see a gun immediately with, with the person. But that doesn't always mean that the gun didn't fall under the body or, or something along those lines. So they're going to have to go ahead and assume that whoever shot James is still in the house. So they're going to do a, a sweep of the house as quickly and safely as they can. During the sweep, they're going to find Denise deceased in the bathroom. And the one thing they're going to notice that there's that there is no obvious firearm. Because if the firearm had been left there, they pr likely would have assumed in the beginning that this was a murder-suicide one party shot the other and then turned the weapon on themselves it, it unfortunately happens all too often in all, in these cases and that would have been explained why there was a disturbance and then the line went dead and then nobody's answering on the other side and now you have two deceased people so they had to have been thinking that you know they're the the worst thing they're dealing with at this point is, is a murder suicide but as they're walking through the home they're not seeing the weapon and these are not to be too gross here but the weapon used was a shotgun and shotgun wounds to the head to the face area are devastating i mean there is no mistaking the fact that these these people are not only deceased but i mean it again it's it's a very devastating sight to see so this is not the same damage you're going to see from a handgun or even a smaller caliber rifle so they know, but they know they're looking for a large caliber rifle, or in this case, a shotgun, and they're not seeing it. Those are much harder to fall under a body or kind of get dropped somewhere than, say, a handgun. So, so now they start to think that something else is going on here. That that these two people were killed by a third party that that is not in the house. So they start looking through the house trying to identify who else could have been there did somebody else live with them and this is when they're going to notice i'm assuming uh, jamie's bedroom and photos throughout the house now i did read somewhere in a redacted report and it was kind of interesting because there's parts of it that were redacted and crossed out stating that somebody that one of the deputies recognized a correctional officer in one of the photos, family photos, and they believe that somebody was able to get a hold of that person who then told the investigators that there was also supposed to be this this 13-year-old girl, Jamie Kloss, living at the home. It, it was strange, and I only say that because most of it was redacted, but later on there was a paragraph that parts weren't redacted and so i'm not going to use any names i'm i'm just going to assume that based on what i read and worked around the redactions that that's kind of how they were able to verify that there should be a third person in the home it should be this 13 year old girl 
and she's not around. So suddenly they go from the worst case being a murder-suicide to potentially the worst case being some type of home invasion robbery where this couple is killed to now they've got a double homicide and a missing 13-year-old girl. And this is where a lot of theories and speculations began. And I've mentioned in other episodes, one thing that police often don't have going in their favor on these cases is there's not a high likelihood that the officers are going to personally know these families or know the family dynamics. And so when you come across two victims that the officers have never had contact with before, it's there's going to be a bit of a learning curve to figure out exactly what's going on. Now, now that's not always the case. Sometimes there's families that are calling the police quite a bit and so family or that so that officers are very familiar with these families but that didn't seem like that was the case here so officers are kind of playing a very quick game of catch-up to figure out exactly what's going on so you know there's a lot of theories out there did jamie meet some guy online and the parents were preventing her from seeing him and he was an older guy or just somebody the parents didn't like even if it was a kid her age and and was there some type of plot to kill the parents and and run away together was this an instance in which jamie met someone online or in person that took it upon himself to free jamie from some type of oppressive parenting or whatever it may be because we'll cover some cases i'm sure at some point down in the podcast here where that is the case where teenagers or children of parents have conspired to kill their parents in order to achieve some level of freedom whether it be pure physical freedom financial freedom because you know their their parents have money but basically everything has to be on the table at this point because Jamie's not there. I'm sure there's not a whole lot known about Jamie. Now, they are going to learn very quickly as a part of this investigation. They're going to talk to relatives and friends and teachers and all kinds of stuff to get an idea of what they might be dealing with. But I'm just talking about that initial few hours when they're at, when they're at that scene and they're trying to figure out exactly what they have. One thing that law enforcement has to do, and I believe they did in this case, was treat it as if Jamie is a victim. And... That involves all of the resources that come with a child abduction. So very quickly, we're going to have the FBI involved and multiple uh, agencies involved to try to figure out what happened, why it happened, and where Jamie is. Now, one thing I I guess there's not going to be a lot to cover from the crime scene itself. One thing I did note in the, the readings that was kind of interesting is that pretty quick or pretty early on officers were fairly confident that the weapon used was a pump 12 gauge shotgun and the reason for this was that two shots were fired from outside the home they know that the shot that killed James and the shot that breached the door however only one shotgun shell casing was found outside and a second shotgun casing was found inside the front door area where no shot had been fired and so a little lesson here in the operation of shotguns shotguns for the most part 
come in either pump or semi-auto. Now there are lever actions and, and, and breech loaders and, and other things, but for the most part, most of the shotguns you're gonna see out there are gonna be pump or semi-auto. And a semi-auto shotgun functions much like a semi-automatic handgun where each time you pull the trigger, a round is gonna fire, the gun itself is going to eject that spent casing and insert, if possible, a new casing if there's one from the tube or magazine. So when this happens on a semi-automatic shotgun, any shot that's fired is going to have a casing in the general area in which that shot was fired. So it is almost impossible for someone to fire two shots from a semi-automatic shotgun and only have one casing found in that general area. However, with a pump shotgun, the user of that shotgun is going to be the, the mechanical input that removes the fired casing and then the slide going back forward is going to insert a new round uh, from the tube in this case. So the most likely way that a two shots were fired outside and only one shell case was found outside and one was found inside was that after firing the shot that breached the door, once the suspect entered the home, he then pumped the shotgun, which would have removed the spent casing and inserted a new one, and it would have done it inside the threshold of the home where no shot had been fired. So it's, it's not a case-breaking a discovery by any means. It wasn't going to identify the gun or eliminate a suspect or anything those, along those lines, but just one of those many things that crime scene investigators, investigators, police officers on a scene are looking for to kind of tell the story of what happened. And in this case, they do end up being correct in regards to the fact that it was a 12 gauge pump shotgun. So we have the night of the investigation, the next day, I remember this hitting the news, it was a major story, kind of small town, northern Wisconsin, double homicides don't happen that often, and then to have a, a 13 year old missing as a result of it, it caught the, the media firestorm at the time, which is good because if all theories are still in play, which they likely would have been, at least to some degree now, as the days go on and officers do find out more about Jamie, it's not as if any of the family members or, or teachers or anything like that are, are going to identify someone in Jamie's life that would be capable of doing this because the fact of the matter is, as we're going to find out, there just isn't anyone. By all accounts, she was a good student, a good friend. She didn't have any connections to anybody that would do anything like this. So as more and more information is going to, be, is going to come in, more and more likely that officers are going to, or investigators are going to believe that what they have here is some type of a unwilling abduction situation and that Jamie was either abducted and killed or abducted and being held in captivity. So on October 17th, still no one has seen Jamie. And 
you know, when I covered the Jacob Wedling case in episode one, if we think back to 1989, I don't think it would be as shocking to people back in the 80s or early 90s if a child chose to either run away or was abducted by someone they knew that there wouldn't be a kind of any type of footprint left behind in regards to where that person currently is however i think in 2018 if a 13 year old went missing voluntarily it's very hard for teenagers nowadays, I believe, to stay off of social media, to not have contact with friends. It's, we live in a digital world where contact with somebody else is a small electronic device away from each other. So I think as time goes on, especially now in, in today's world, not being able to have or not having anybody having any contact with a teenager is going to raise more alarms than, than it would have 20, 30 years ago. So we're two days removed from her parents being uh, murdered and nobody has seen or heard anything from Jamie. So the FBI, as I said, is involved. They've got hundreds of tips pouring in. As I talked about in the Jacob Wedling case, this is good and bad. There, it's investigations need tips in order to get gain information, but at the same time, a lot of tips can come in that waste law enforcement resources. And I'm not blaming the people calling tips. For the most part, they're just trying to do the right thing. They might see a girl in North Dakota that looks like Jamie at a gas station, and they call it in, and. You know that might be the person that finds Jamie, and that's so. I'm not discouraging anyone from calling, but if somebody does it maliciously or does it to garner attention or just try to get a reward when they're not really sure, they're pretty sure it's not Jamie, or, or they're 100% know it's not Jamie, that wastes a lot of law enforcement resources. So at this time in the investigation, though, they're going to take every tip. They're going to try to find Jamie. That's their goal. That's what they want to do, and they're they're are talking to everybody in Jamie's life. Now, the one thing I did see in, in a couple of the reports is what's also difficult in today's world is the, as I mentioned, the social media stuff. There were a lot of local kids in the area. I'm not saying just Barron, Wisconsin, but just in the general area period that thought they it would be funny to take credit for uh, kidnapping Jamie and killing her parents or whatever it may be so of course people are sending snapchats to each other or instant messages or whatever and all that stuff is getting brought to the attention of the police so they have to now look into all of these rumors and speculations and meritless bragging I guess uh, that people are doing and it's, it's again it makes the, the investigation more difficult but it's just part of the process. We move on to October 22nd. Uh, this is now a week after the disappearance, and the sheriff is requesting help for a public search, and thousands of people show up. And I, I know people that personally uh, made the drive up there to do this search because we're now a week out, and I know there's the golden you know, 24, 48 hours, and we're, we're well past that, and I believe people started to think that 
if she was taken by some form of a, a sex offender or something along those lines that uh, they may have kidnapped her in order to sexually assault her and kill her and leave her body somewhere and they they need they need to do these searches because they need to uh, whether she's alive or deceased they need to find her and so I, I remember thousands of people showing up and, and walking again this is heavily forested areas there's farms in this area there's a lot of area to cover a lot of ground to cover on these searches and 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 people did show up and and looked for anything they could find and this falls back to what i talked about in one of the earlier episodes is at what point does something become a piece of evidence somebody's going to find a receipt that blew out of a car a mcdonald's receipt on the day that Jamie went missing. Is that evidence? Is it just trash? Is it just garbage? I mean, it's it's hard to, it's going to be hard to weed through everything that is evidence and isn't evidence. Um, and with that many people searching, a lot of stuff's going to be found. And unfortunately, in this case, Jamie wasn't found during any of these searches. So on October 24th, Jamie's aunt is going to make a public plea to Jamie and her captor for Jamie to come home. And again, at this point, they still don't know if, if Jamie's gone voluntarily and is just, you know, hiding out with, with somebody that she fell in love with and and now is afraid to come home or whatever it may be. So they're, they're putting, you know, Jamie's aunt agrees to go on and make this heartfelt message. And the part that got me, I remember this when it happened and when I was doing the research is um, Jamie's aunt told Jamie that their dog Molly is waiting for you and, and sleeps in one of her sweatshirts and it just got me because my dog if I leave for more than a couple hours will go find one of my articles of clothing to bring down and lay with because you know that helps with their separation anxiety and and here's this dog that you know just lost two of its owners and the third one they can't find so it just one of those things that went whether I saw when I, when I saw it or when I was researching it, it just kind of you know it hit me right in the feels. But the same day, the FBI now offers a twenty-five thousand dollars reward for information in regards to Jamie, hoping that that will entice somebody who knows something or is maybe hiding Jamie or or, or knows somebody who is hiding Jamie to to come forward. Then a few days later, October twenty-seventh, Denise and James are laid to rest in a public memorial service and. When I read it in the research, uh, it got me thinking a lot of the times when something big like this happens, the family will still want to do some type of a private memorial service. But at the same time, it's a very valuable tool. And I know it's going to sound morbid, but it's a very valuable tool for law enforcement to have one of these public style funerals. And I'm sure they had a lot of surveillance at this funeral watching because if, as far as they know, if Jamie was involved, she may convince whoever took her that she wants to go to her parents' funeral. And even if she put makeup on, a wig on, whatever it may be, people were going to be looking for somebody who's out of place. And if you close it down to just private service, it's less likely that either the killer or the abductor or Jamie is going to show up to this because it's going to obviously stick out like a sore thumb if they're not part of, of the family or if it's only family members, they're going to recognize Jamie. So notice this and just made me think that this 
again, as morbid as, morbid as it sounds, it, there is a tactic to having these uh, large public services, and it, it may be something the family wanted too, and it just kind of, at that point, um, is beneficial to, to both parties, I guess, as beneficial as something as terrible as, as a, a double funeral for homicide victims can be. So then the next day, there's... Everybody thought this, this was going to be the break in the case that solved it. Uh, the next day, October 28th, this guy known, named Kyle Janke of Cameron, Wisconsin, is caught via motion-activated cameras breaking into the home. So they installed all types of surveillance equipment, I'm sure, because, again, they don't know that Jamie didn't have a part in this and at some point isn't going to run out of clothing or want to go back and pick up something she forgot or something along those lines, or the killer's going to go back there to try to do something. So they put up these motion-detecting cameras, and they go off and catch this guy breaking into the house. He is arrested coming out of the house with Jamie's some of Jamie's clothing, including underwear. And so police have to be thinking one of two things, either... This guy's a complete and utter psycho and is stealing this missing girl's underwear either for personal pleasure or to try to make money off of it or something along those lines. Or he's taking these items because he needs to give Jamie more clothing and underwear and stuff wherever they're hiding out. So police are obviously going to look at this guy extremely uh, closely, but he is cleared of having any involvement in Jamie's abduction and the, and the murder of, of her parents. And my, the only thing I can think of is he must have had some type of airtight alibi that had him on camera or at work or, or something during the time period that these murders and abduction occurred for them to move on from him within a day or two uh, after this arrest. So ultimately, he's just he's going to get charged with breaking into the home and stealing items, but cleared of any involvement in the murder and the abduction. So now we get to November 17th, and hunting season begins. And northern Minnesota, northern Wisconsin, hunting season is almost considered a holiday. I guess it is probably considered a holiday by a lot of people. Uh, so there's going to be a mass migration of people up to the north woods here of, of Wisconsin. And so the law enforcement officials reach out to these hunters and say, please keep an eye out for anything that you see. A lot of these hunting shacks and whatnot are only used for a few weeks during hunting season. People put a mobile home or a, some type of a camper or something like that on a hundred and some acre property of just unusable forest or, or wetland area or something along those lines just to hunt in for those few weeks a year. So, with Jamie going missing in, in the middle of October, it was possible that if she was hiding out with somebody or somebody that was even keeping her against her will, uh, they could be doing so in a hunting shack. The other more depressing uh, reason why is, unfortunately, a lot of bodies are found by hunters because they're out in areas that people aren't normally. And a lot of times these are private lands that are only used for hunting and killers will dump bodies on them, and then the hunters themselves will discover the bodies. So it's rather common in missing persons cases for law enforcement officials to ask hunters to be on the lookout for something that doesn't 
quite look right. So we get through hunting season around December 4th. A Christmas tree in Jamie's honor is decorated at the County Justice Center. And then on January 10th, Jamie is found alive. She's found in Gordon, Wisconsin, which is about 70 miles north of where she was taken from. And shortly after she's uh, located, a suspect is arrested. So this, again, kind of set the whole story on fire again. Uh, this is 88 days after she, her parents were killed and she was taken. So let's first discuss the suspect, because I think we can't get much further into this story without talking about who this guy is, and, and then we'll, we'll discuss what exactly happened so suspect is identified as as jake patterson he's born june 17th 1997 in wisconsin so not much is known about his childhood i mean i, I could find his family dynamics and whatnot it did seem like his parents had a pretty rough marriage looks like you know when he was about eight years old they almost divorced and then a few years later they followed through with it and, and officially got divorced when he's about 10 years old this is the same time period classmates most of them described him as just being kind of there in school he did have a few close friends he did complete uh, compete in quiz bowl and a couple things so it's not like he was completely antisocial, but a lot of people said he was just kind of a, a loner and and didn't really get involved in a lot of stuff now when he gets to 10th grade people start noticing that he's getting angry one one classmate said there was a time when he got hit in the face in gym class with a ball or something like that and, and completely lost it and people just started noticing him withdrawing more and getting more and more angry this is about the same time his father apparently left the home so his older sisters moved out his father's moved out and it's just jake and his older brother eric and eric is no angel either apparently he had arrest for fourth degree sexual assault and had some felony drug charges he was dealing with so you've got this angry withdrawn teenager living in a home with no father and the only adult is involved in sexual assaults and drug charges so he continues to withdraw his senior year he skips prom doesn't go on the senior class trip uh, avoids the senior photo and he tells everybody that he's going to join the marines side note i guess he was voted the most quiet by his class so this is again just an individual that seems to avoid others and his dream becomes joining the Marines and becoming uh, an infantry soldier. Or, so he does join the Marines and he gets shipped off to basic training in the fall after he graduates from high school, which is pretty common for anybody joining the military. They'll go through a lot of their entrance processing and that kind of stuff. After they graduate, there's kind of a lull as they wait until a slot opens them for them to go into basic training itself. And But he only survives five weeks of basic training. And I think this is going to be kind of an indicator of, of who uh, Jake Patterson is because I, I went through basic training back in 2000 for infantry for the, the U.S. Army. And you could tell the recruits that would sign up to be in the military 
because it was a lifelong goal of them or something along those lines, but they couldn't handle being yelled at. They couldn't handle the rigorous physical stuff that comes along with it. They just either broke down emotionally, physically, whatever it may be, and withdrew. So this this is Jake. He doesn't, his lifelong goal is over now. He only makes it five weeks into basic training and, and he's sent home. Uh, so he comes back home, and this is where he begins holding a series of really short-term jobs. And I mean short-term jobs, I mean like a day or two. Uh, there was a, a day that he went and worked at the Genio plant that Jamie's mother, Denise, worked at, but nobody could find that there was any contact between the two of them there. Uh, I know initially when that was reported, everybody said, well, there's the connection, you know, they they the, the mother and, and him worked together like he would have you know known no it's a very large plant and he they said only worked there for a day and it's pretty much unknown whether they would have even you know seen each other let alone or, or, or talked with each other let alone seen each other so uh it's it's on the way to one of these jobs that he saw jamie so this he makes this decision because he hates society and he feels he's attracted to younger girls and feels that he doesn't care that society doesn't like that he's going to take a girl and he doesn't care about the consequences and literally the first girl he sees after he makes this decision is jamie getting on the school bus and he decides that that is going to be his target so he actually made two attempts before the uh october 15th homicide and abduction on october 5th so 10 days before the crimes he drove to the class home and was going to kidnap jamie but he said there's too many cars in the driveway he came back two days later i'm guessing later uh in the evening on the 7th and he saw lights on and people moving around inside the house so he aborted that attempt but by the time october 15th rolled around he had decided he was going to go in the house no matter what so he had made he had done several things to try to escape leaving any evidence behind so he shaved his head he shaved his face he showered before he left the apartment uh, the 12 gauge shotgun that he used was his father's and he wiped it down uh, before he went into the scene uh, so he didn't leave any dna or fingerprints I'm guessing if he dropped or forgot the shotgun. He purposely picked a Mossberg 12-gauge shotgun because he knew they were extremely popular and that 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 would be harder to trace. However, on a side note, shotgun shells themselves aren't traceable per se, like back to a specific gun. However, the firing pin stamp on the back of the 12 gauge uh, spent casing is still going to be uh, microscop able to be microscopically compared uh, in a ballistics test to a, a shotgun that would have fired that round so short of him picking up those rounds that he fired which he clearly didn't um, there's really he he's still going to be traced back via the gun if he doesn't get rid of it but he did he did make several efforts um he wore a ski mask he wore gloves he had stolen license plates 
to put onto the car so that if somebody you know reported seeing the car or if i'm guessing if he had to abort again but somebody saw the car they wouldn't be able to, to come find him he had removed the dome light in the car he'd removed the trunk light and he had removed the the emergency release hatch that exists in most trunks where just in case you are a kid and playing around and you fall into the, the trunk and it closes there's the by law there's a little uh, string you pull that releases the lock so you can get out from the inside he removed that so he had put a lot of thought and planning into this this kidnapping and and ultimately when he was asked why did he kill the parents he said he had to kill all the witnesses and he didn't care who got in his way um, so he had already predetermined that he was going to kill everyone and take jamie and he had he told officials afterwards that he did see the police cars he did pull over for them and when asked what would happen if they had you know turned around and tried to stop him he said he would have gotten into a shootout with them because uh, he just didn't care so after his arrest and before his time in court he's going to go through a mental health evaluation and although it didn't i couldn't find anything saying he was diagnosed with any specific mental health disorder it was reported that he scored high on anger, criminal personality, and ability to rationalize, and had an ability to rationalize his actions instead of regretting them. So a lot of this kind of goes back to episode four with Todd Kolhep. Is he definitely uh, Jake Patterson? Definitely seems to be somebody like Kolhep that just has a, a disconnection from society and will let anger and rationalize why he can do certain things or, or how he can get away with certain things and he does he claims to show remorse in court but i think later on it's going to be seen that he just likes manipulating people or just like saying what he thinks people want to hear and that people believe he truly does not feel remorse for what he did other than the fact that he he regrets that he got caught which is very different from remorse for the actual crime itself so then the question becomes where was jamie for those 88 days how was he able to keep her in captivity uh, so patterson took her to that that remote house i guess up there in gordon wisconsin and i read somewhere that approximately 10 days after the kidnapping and, and homicide the that jake's or that patterson's father had put the house had given the house title over to the bank so i don't know if it was some type of a foreclosure situation or something along those lines or there was just mention of the fact that the the father wasn't really involved with the house so this was kind of a place where patterson could keep jamie without anybody really knowing now he was able to keep her there for 88 days and she's able to say afterwards what he would do is he would if he needed to leave or if somebody was coming over uh, in his bedroom he had this twin bed and he would have her get under the bed and then he would line the open areas of the bed is two two parts of her up against the wall so the bed was up against the back wall you know or, or the headboard of the bed was against the wall and one of the sides of the bed was against the wall he would line the 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 base of the bed and the open side with like 
said duffel bags and suitcases and, and laundry baskets and stuff, but he would throw a bunch of weights in there, like heavy weightlifting style weights, so that A, it would be more difficult for her to move them, and B, if she did move them, he would be able to see that. But he didn't have any like locks on the door or anything like that, because I'm pretty sure he was afraid somebody would question him about that. So, And, and he threatened her uh, if she tried to escape or if she tried to alert anybody that she was there that he would hurt her i guess one time he did hit her with some type of a duster or something on her back really hard when he thought she had moved one of the one of the weights while he was gone or while he was away and you know you have to realize that this poor girl you know knows that this guy killed both of her parents so he's clearly capable of extreme violence to the point of homicide so as a 13 year old girl she's not likely to risk testing this guy to see like where her limits are at she probably feels it's just safer to to go along with his demands and, and to not rock the boat for now and just hope that she gets rescued and i'm sure that was going through her mind a lot uh, during those 88 days that she just hoped that somebody would figure out who has her and where she is and, and just come to her rescue. But at, at some point, she uh, Patterson tells her that he's uh, on the day that she was found, January 10th, Patterson tells her she's leaving or he's leaving for a few hours. And she decides this is her chance. This is her opportunity. And I have to believe at some point that Patterson was continuing to let his guard down more and more and just felt more either comfortable leaving her thinking she wasn't going to do anything because she hadn't before uh just something he couldn't remain at a high level of security and alertness for this is now 88 days in so i think he just finally let his guard down enough and she saw the opportunity and and, and she bravely took it and uh, ran across the the street and and found the uh the dog walker and and told her what was going on so so thankfully after she came across the the dog walker uh during her escape uh the dog walker took her to a nearby house where they called 911 the sheriff's deputies arrived uh took her into protective custody and they're asking her do you know which house you would you were staying in do you know who lives there do you know what vehicle they drive she described patterson's vehicle and it just so happens that that vehicle was out driving around officers found a reason to stop it i think it had a tail light out and a, a license plate light out or a cracked tail light or something along those lines but stopped the vehicle and the driver was identified as jake patterson and he was uh, taken into custody at that point so you know her bravery of getting to escape not only saved her life but it prevented him from from being able to get away now he would later go on and say that he had come home from whatever he was doing and found that she wasn't under the bed assumed that she had escaped and was driving around looking for her so his hope was that you know nobody was out and about this is a pretty remote area and that he would find her basically abduct her again and bring her back and either that was going to happen or he was going to kill her and then clearly he had would have likely taken uh somebody else at that point 
So ultimately, Patterson is going to plead guilty on March 27th. He pleads guilty to two counts of first-degree homicide and one count of kidnapping. Now, I read in several locations that he claims he did this to just put an end to the whole situation. He, he tried to come across as being this super nice guy that was just willing to plead to, to make sure that, that Jamie's family didn't go through any more trauma, but I don't think anybody really bought it for a second that he was this caring, nice individual. It just, again, I think it fits into his manipulative personality that he's just gonna try to make him look like he's uh, in the best light possible. So on May 24th, Patterson sentenced to two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole, plus 40 years for the kidnapping. And I believe I read somewhere the judge told him that he was an extremely evil man and was going to make sure that, they, that he did not see the outside world again. Some people kind of question why there weren't any charges against uh, or so all those charges were out of Barron County, but were where the original homicide abduction occurred. And some people kind of question why the officials in the area where she was held in captivity and escaped from, why they didn't bring their own charges against Patterson. And it was explained that he already was going to be facing two consecutive life sentences plus 40 years without the possibility of parole. So he wasn't getting out and any charges, if he decided he was going to fight these, any assault charges or, or, or unlawful detainer charge, whatever it may be in uh, this other area, that would put uh, or would potentially bring Jamie in as a witness to be questioned during any type of trial and they just felt it just wasn't worth it uh, she was ready to to be out of the limelight and just try to go back to living her life and at this point there was really no need for those charges now the only other thing i found in this case um, that was interesting was that in 2019 patterson was moved from wisconsin to new mexico to serve as time down in, in New Mexico because of security issues. Now I know that anybody who commits a child or commits a crime that involves a child is going to be very low on the ladder in prison. It comes to um, how they are treated, and it sounds like uh, because this case was so well known in Wisconsin. I'm guessing uh, Patterson was not having a very good time in the Wisconsin uh, correctional world so the the only thing you know i understand the move but i guess a lot of secretive stuff started to happen in terms of the wisconsin department of corrections refused or, or took patterson off of a, a a database that was accessible by the public as to where this person is currently incarcerated and there are some reasons why i guess corrections are supposed to be allowed to do that but in this case it made a lot of people very upset that that this was done because they couldn't really see a reason why patterson's location needed to be protected i mean if he's in prison the other prisoners are going to know he's there so the only thing i guess i could see is if somebody wanted to target him another prisoner wanted to target him and do something to him and somehow manipulated the system into getting transferred to that prison 
that's about the only way I could think of, but I, I have to imagine that the information network within these these prisons and whatnot, the, the prisoners are going to know more than the outside world is going to know in regards to, to who's at what prison. And, and so it did seem unnecessary that the Department of Corrections was going to keep that information from the public, and a lot of people started to kind of cry about conspiracy theories or too much you know, secretive stuff going on in regards to this, but ultimately, you know, I guess the, the, the thing is, is no matter where Patterson is, he's, he's never seeing the light of day and he's likely going to face, we'll just call them security issues wherever he ends up in, in whatever prison he ends up in. Cause people are going to know who he is. So, as I've done before, I mean, this is pretty obvious who the hero of this story is. Uh, just like in the case of, of uh, Caleb Brown in the uh, Superbike Murders episodes, Jamie has to be absolutely the hero of this case. Now, I did see somewhere where I think Jenny O itself had offered a $25,000 reward for uh, information leading to the capture of whoever killed Denise since she worked for Genio and the safe return of Jamie and since Jamie rescued herself and gave police the suspect on a silver platter Genio followed through and, and gave that money to Jamie and I, I think that's you know one of the few bright spots in the story I also got to see a few photos of Jamie afterwards and she's back reunited with Molly so that warms my heart a little bit that uh, this dog has you know one of its humans back at least uh, in its in its life so you know I'm, I'm sure there's some some healing going on there in regards uh, and to, for, for Jamie having Molly back as well so uh, again without really needing much expl explanation I can definitely say that Jamie's a hero in my book and uh, I hope that despite everything that she went through and obviously the devastating loss of her parents um, that she's able to get the most she can out of life and know that she's a super strong person that could survive this and make sure that the monster that did this is never going to see the outside world again so that's going to wrap it up for the uh, case of Jamie Kloss, my first flyover country episode. So again, thank you everyone for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes. Like I said, I have about 30 episodes planned out here with some pretty cool cases that I can't wait to cover. Feel free to write me at trueblucrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you have any requests, I'll add them on to the list of future episodes and then uh, find me at on the facebook and uh, if you can donate to patreon so i can keep putting out these free uh free podcasts thanks much guys talk to you later bye